Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Joining us now, Mike Wilson of Morgan Stanley, their chief U.S. equity strategist. Mike, I want to go 60,000 feet on you. We have had a stretch of disinflation from Volcker to Mike Wilson right now. Do you sense that this is a nuance within a bull market wrapped around fixed income, commodities, the rest of it, the dollar, et cetera? Or are we at a point of a major change in the vectors to 2025? Well, look, I mean, we, you know, we've had that view for a while. We felt like last year's pandemic was the catalyst to kind of move us out of this disinflationary, deflationary world we've been in for 20 years, quite frankly. A lot of other things uh, you know, were happening before the pandemic, deglobalization, uh, some of the populist movement, which was talking about you know, inequality of wealth and income, and that, that train had already left the station. So the pandemic, which by the way, pandemics are typically uh, inflationary. Um, so that was a perfect foil to get the transition from monetary policy dominance to fiscal policy dominance, and it's begun. And normally it happens with, with what I call a kickoff move, Tom. When you see big trends change, you get a big kickoff move, and that's what we've seen in all the inflation indicators. My best guess is it'll settle down, but then the, the trend is changing. And so it's going to be a long journey ahead. You know, it took us 35 years to get here. It's going to take us 35 years, probably get to the peak in rates. It's going to be a slow moving train. And, you know, essentially what, we're, what I'm saying is buy the dips on inflation. Mike, the equity market, you're looking for a 10% move lower on the S&P 500. We've had five percentage points of it. Are you seeing with increasing confidence it could be worse than that? It could drift towards that other level you were looking for, a 20% move. If you are, why? Yeah, John, I mean, last time we chatted about this, this was kind of after we, we made that lean. Uh, it was prior to uh, the situation in, in China with the property development company. And, you know, look, I think uh, what happened here is, uh, you know, we, we've got more data on the, the idea that not only are we getting a, you know, a tightening of financial conditions from the Fed, lower multiples, but we're also getting a, a greater slowdown than perhaps is, is expected now. We're seeing in the earnings numbers. You guys have been talking about the cost pressures to supply issues and constraints, but there's also this payback in demand thesis that we've had for quite a while. Our cost thesis is playing out now. People are aware of it, but I don't think they really appreciate how much payback and demand there's going to be in these areas that we overconsumed. Okay, so the bottom line for us is uh, that risk has increased, um, and you know it's not our base case yet, but uh, but clearly moving that way. Mike, touch on this. You've touched on it briefly. Build on it for us. What we've seen over the last several months has been so well flagged. It's talked about so much, so well known, and yet clearly from your perspective, poorly priced. Mike, why is that? Well, it's not poorly priced at the stock and sector level, right? I mean, we've talked about this too, John. I mean, it's, ro- it's been basically a rolling correction since March. You know, that's when we made the mid-cycle transition call. The market has moved aggressively towards high quality, large cap, high quality in particular. And what the market is saying is that we're, you know, we're getting taking shelter. You know, the, the market, uh, it's got to own something, right? And, and what happens is people move to, you know, the highest parts of the land away from the flood. Uh, and that's where the high quality stocks are. Typically, when you get to the point, the, the moment of truth, which is now, which is where the earnings start to get cut and, and, and where the Fed actually, you know, moved to, to tighten, 
then even the high uh, shelter areas are no longer protected. And that's how the mid-cycle transition ends. So, I mean, the script is really playing out to a T. Uh, you know, it's hard to trade. Uh, there's a lot of cross currents, but generally speaking, uh, we're right on schedule and it should finish up in the fourth quarter. As you said, the rolling correction since March has left a lot of big stocks like big tech stocks down substantially. If we get a full 20 percent correction here, what will be the drivers of that, given how significant the corrections already been in some of the major components of the indexes? Well, Lisa, but I mean, quite frankly, I mean, the, you know, those stocks benefited tremendously from March until recently. So they had a huge move up and that's what's held the averages up. Um, so now they're going to have their, you know, comeuppance and, and they may not even go back to where they were in March and that would be a big drop, uh, but they're going to have to go down if the major indices are going to have this 10 to 20% correction. And that should happen anyways, because, you know, quite frankly, those stocks are most vulnerable to a tightening of financial conditions. And not all of them, but I think several of those companies are also vulnerable to this payback and demand uh, from the overconsumption during the work from home uh, period. So what's the driver then? Is it going to be just a direct yield correlation story that basically as yields go up, the big tech stocks sell off? Or is there going to be an earnings component as well? Yeah, I think it's both. I mean, that's the fire and ice you know, scenario, right? The fire is uh, basically you get a tightening financial conditions, multiples come down. And then you get a little bit of ice on the back end of that. The deceleration that you always get at this stage of the economic cycle is, is normal. Now, normally what happens is, you know, earnings continue to go up. Uh, but because the amplitude of this, you know, recession recovery were so dramatic, you have to assume that the mid-cycle transition deceleration will be more or larger than average. Okay. I mean, to, to, to think otherwise would just be intellectually dishonest. Mike, are we finally at a point where we've been so wrong about single-digit actuarial assumption, 10-year SPX, 15.7% per year? Can you tell your team at Morgan Stanley the single-digit equity return world is finally upon us? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, it's, it's interesting, Tom. I think you, you understand this, but you know, it's, it's, it's easier to predict stock returns over a seven-year period than it is over a one-year period. Why is that? Because over seven years, the value, you know, your starting valuation comes to fruition. Okay, you can't you can't avoid that. You know, your returns, uh, your your actual returns over a seven-year period are contingent upon the price you pay. And we all know assets are expensive right now. Whether you're talking about bonds, which are being financially repressed, or stocks, or any asset that's tied to the ten-year Treasury yield, which is artificially low. So yeah, I mean, the starting point is poor on a seven year basis. And so it's, it's high conviction, and this is not a big call by the way, high conviction, it's a single digit uh, return outlook, okay? Not the end of the world, but I mean, that's what financial repression is. I mean, that's, that's the world we're in, lower returns. It's not the end of the world, but you know, that's a fact. Mike, great to catch up as always. Got to work through this together through Q4 and work out when to buy this market. Mike Wilson there of Morgan Stanley, Chief U.S. Equity Strategist and CIO. Speaking of gloom, that means Washington. Andy Blocker joins us right now with Invesco, head of U.S. Government Affairs. Andy, I love what you say. We've seen this movie before. I'm not sure I doubt, I, I, I believe it. Is the negotiation or compromise that we see this movie before? So, generally speaking, yes, but in specifics, it's uncertain. Look, first of all, let's just say, look, we, we, we kept the government open. Okay, hooray. We're going to be open until December 3rd. But on this bipartisan infrastructure bill, I think there's a real tension between the moderates 
and the liberals in the Democratic Party. And the question is, are they going to hang together or are they going to hang separately? Well, I mean, I mean, give us a historic precedent here. I mean, what do they do? I've never, I don't believe there's any negotiation going on. They're just getting to deadlines and away we go. Do you perceive true negotiation in a fractious Democratic Party? Yes, I do. I think, look, this is part of the sausage-making process of Washington. That part hasn't changed. And their political interests at the end of the day are aligned. They need to help President Biden here. He needs a win. Um, he's been taking on water since the summer because of the Delta variant surge and also because of the difficulty in Afghanistan. Without him raising his political standing, showing that he can actually get something done for the American people, do it in a bipartisan way, ultimately, he's really going to have a tough time, and so will Democrats with him. Andy, we're hearing reports of Nancy Pelosi on the halls of Washington, D.C., in the halls of Congress, on her phone, nonstop, morning and night. There is a new feeling of concern among Democratic leaders right now of wrangling their party together. When you talk to people, is this a new level of concern that they cannot get anything done? So it is heightened, I will say that. Um, it, two, two things are different. Number one, normally what happens is whether it's the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, the more conservatives in the Republican Party or the more liberals in the Democratic Party will roll the moderates and say, look, we need you to vote for this. Just take the hit. What's different now on the Democratic side is that the moderates are actually standing up and saying, look, I don't want to take a difficult vote in the House that I know the Senate's not going to vote for. And so that's creating this tension where normally they just take the vote in the House, suck it up, liberals get what they want, but then the Senate comes back and moves it back. What's going on now is, Moderates saying, look, I don't want to be um, like we've seen in the past, where it was 1993 with the BTU tax, with Marjorie Margolis-Wisbinski walking down, taking that tough vote on the BTU tax that they knew the Senate wasn't going to uh, vote on, and she lost her race. Um, we've seen that happen many, many times, and so that's going to be the crux. It's moderates holding the line, saying, I don't want to take this tough vote in the House, versus liberals who are being very, very bold here and saying, look, I'm almost willing to take down this agenda, this entire agenda, unless I get what I want. Meanwhile, Andy, a lot of people are looking at the softness of markets and they're saying part of it is driven by but just peak uh, recovery and the idea of slowing growth. The other is driven by policy uncertainty and this fear that we potentially could head to some sort of default, some sort of uh, disruption in a lack of fiscal spending that was largely expected. Given that you're at the intersection of markets and of government affairs. What's the biggest concern you hear internally in terms of policy uncertainty? Is it them getting something done that is too big? Is it not getting something done or is it a default? So a month ago, I would have put default higher up because Republicans have made it clear that in the Senate, they weren't gonna do a bipartisan deal, which they've done recently. That put all the onus on Democrats in. But now that the Democrats, I think, know now, I've seen some comments from some members, especially in the House, saying, look, we're going to go through this dog and pony show. We're going to try to force the Republicans to take a few bad votes. But at the end of the day, they know they're going to have to do their own little reconciliation package, pass a, a debt ceiling raise on their own. So that, I think, is going to be off the table by mid-October. I think we're on a path to get that done. The bigger issue for us is how big is this um, fissure within the Democratic Party. Is it so big that, that liberal Democrats are going to crush the ability to get this bipartisan infrastructure bill just so they get the number on the reconciliation, or are they going to ultimately oh, revenge? Come on, I Andy. Think at the end of, yeah. you're, you're being way too kind. Are they, you know, you're down there in the Beltway drinking the Kool-Aid. Are the liberals of the Democratic Party handing the Republicans 
majorities in the Senate and the House? If they tank the bipartisan infrastructure bill, yes, that's the answer. Okay. I... So moving forward, what are you watching in terms of deadlines with respect to uh, getting something done? Because right now, it seems like the progressive wing is pretty entrenched, and, uh, and Nancy Pelosi is not going to get any Republicans on her side. Yeah, so I don't think Republicans are going to lend a helping hand here. I think Democrats are going to have to show, whether it's today or a week from now or whenever, that they have the votes to get the bipartisan infrastructure bill on their own. Once they do that, once they show that vote, you see a tons of Republicans um, run to vote for this, but they're not going to be the deciding vote to put the Democrats over the top. So the question is, can Nancy Pelosi corral the Democrats, both voters and, and liberals, to say, hey, we're going to vote on this thing today, decouple this, you trust us, we're going to get you your reconciliation package with all the goodies that you want, um, and that's the key test for the day. Andy, thank you. I've got to leave it there. We appreciate your insights, sir. Come back soon. Andy Blocker there, Invesco Head of U.S. Government Affairs. The gloom this morning, the journey of gloom that we've been on into Q4 has been substantial. James Sweeney parachutes in less gloomy with Credit Suisse and their chief economist. James, I'm going to go right to where you went with your global note which is Jay Pulaski at TPW is on the same page as James Sweeney. The gloom about Asia and China is overwrought. Discuss. Well, Asia has contracted in industrial production terms since early this year. Uh, But as we got into early summer, it was contracting so significantly that it's likely things are going to get a little bit better in the near term. A lot of that weakness was due to idiosyncratic factors, short-term shutdowns of activity because of the virus, supply-side situations. Now, we might be short on chips relative to where we want to be globally for the next 18 months, but we're going to have periods where there's no chips and production can't happen, and periods where some is going to come in and production is going to be really fast. And and I, I think late spring just happened to be a period where production really shut down and fell mm-hmm. in, in Asia and, and were due for, for some short-term reacceleration. You, I think we've had a global trough in the growth rate of industrial production this summer, and it will be rebounding in the second half of the year, even though you know some of the, some of yeah. the troubles and worries about China and housing are significant over a longer period. You have shown me over well in excess of 10 years a great optimism. You are a glass-half-full guy. Push against the summed gloom John, Lisa, and I have heard this morning. Well, you know, right now, um, economic data are all over the place because the pandemic has done strange things to the data. Uh, One of the strange things is that these PMIs, like the ISM today, um, have been much less correlated with industrial activity than they have. So one thing that drives me crazy is when I read in a newspaper that manufacturing just fell in country X because a survey (laughs) fell by two points. Well, we have real data on manufacturing in that country. And, and, you know, basically the real data and the surveys have not been correlated. Actual production has been pretty weak, but in my view, actually, it's going to be reaccelerating from here. Demand is strong. Inventories are low. Businesses are ready to invest globally. Yes, we're worried about further COVID. Yes, we're worried about China housing, but we should should do better than we did in in late Q2. James, we're confusing the pace of the journey with the direction of travel. And Tom, that's what I want to hit on, because TK, I keep hearing the same word again and again and again this morning. Stagflation. Yes. 
Yeah, I mean, it's just yeah. there. I mean, John, it's so good to have Jim, James Sweeney with us. James, weigh in on that, that word that's getting thrown well, around at the moment so casually. I mean, the pace of the journey, the markets move in the short run with the pace of the journey almost always. And the narratives and the fears move with the pace. Recently, the pace has been weak. So everyone's panicking now and telling doom and gloom stories. In terms of the destination where we're going, you're absolutely right. We're going up. Inventories are low. Demand is good. Social distancing is being reduced globally. And as the service sector comes back, employment will grow. As, as industrial production comes back and as these supply side issues gradually fix themselves, you know, we're also going to have you know, downward pressure on some of these goods price inflation shocks that we've had. And almost all of these developments are different from ordinary kind of just after the recession type dynamics. The pandemic is weird. It's not a recession. It's an asterisk. It's a different kind of event. And, and we have to be careful in jumping to strong conclusions about strange behavior in PMIs or inflation or any of these indicators. And stagflation, <laughs> don't get me started. It's a silly hypothesis. Well, I want to start there, James, because I think it's important. It's a word yes. that's being used. People are throwing it around. And let's be clear yeah. here. I'm not talking about just anyone. I'm talking about economists, PhD yeah. economists on Wall Street, throwing that word around, confusing yeah. the pace of the journey with the direction of travel. How powerful is a word, even if it's being used in the wrong way? Well, I mean, if you get if you get some data surprises momentarily in the same direction as you're worried about significant downside risks, you could have big market moves and markets can divert fr diverge from the reality um, meaningfully. But the bottom line is that GDP is actually growing decently in the U.S. and globally right now, is expected to continue to do that for the foreseeable future. Um, and so there's a lot of growth. I mean, we're, we're not at a level of activity that we're happy with yet. Um, in industrial activity, it's actually, you're sort of there. In goods consumption, you're actually beyond there and probably coming down a little bit because they sent these huge checks out a few months ago. In services consumption, you're not there yet. And you're coming up because we have to end this pandemic and get some distancing. But when you add all that messy stuff up, up, up you, you have good growth, you have good growth ahead, and you're going to return to a proper level of employment and a proper level of economic activity. I, I just don't see the contraction in that. But James, this, uh, this really does go back to the point of trying to compare, for example, Evergrande to 2008 or 2000s or 1998. And John was talking about why does it have to be such a catastrophic comparison uh, rather than just something that could be negative, but not necessarily uh, potentially catastrophic. Are we talking about disinflation that could be really problematic for specific sectors, even if it's not exactly stagflation? I mean, I think there's a margin story. I, I think for some sectors, I think these goods price overshoots are going to be coming down. So we're going to have less inflation in, in manufactured goods you know, in the next couple of years than, than we have now. It will be gradually falling. On the services side of the economy, you know, maybe we're going to have high inflation in housing. Maybe we're going to have faster wage growth, uh, higher inflation in in-person in discretionary services. Uh, all of that together still is probably consistent with lower overall inflation. Um, is this something that, you know, everyday people need to worry about? Like, not, not really. Uh, and it should be happening while we're in this bigger recovery. And, and hopefully, you know, the Delta variant goes away, distancing, distancing comes off. Um, and we just have a complicated normalization of economic activity, which each of these different mm -hmm. parts of that normalization following its own special path. And it, it's, it's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit difficult to explain right now, but yeah. that's it. It's, James, complicated. Thanks so much, James Sweeney. John, can we have a vote right now? Sweeney's got to be on like every third day. I agree. 
Yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm sorry. We're all in. I just don't know if James wants to do that. We just Tom. did a caucus. Well, it's not yeah. up to us. We'll have a caucus. It's up to the team at Credit Suisse, Tom. Okay, thank you. Jane Foley is known for writing British paragraphs. They're longer than American paragraphs, but she writes exceptionally terse, brilliant notes on the ebbs and flows of foreign exchange. She's with Rabobank, one of the great commercial banks of Europe. She really has to worry about business transactions, investment, and speculation. She joins us this morning, their senior foreign exchange strategist. Uh, Jane, I love, love, love your quantification of speculation in the Australian dollar. What is the speculation entering Q4 in U.S. dollar, in yen, in euro? Well, I think it's really all one way, and we've seen this uh, pushing back into the U.S. dollar. And to be honest, I think we've got to include emerging markets uh, really in, into your your question there, because uh, what we often see in the dollar, what we always see in the dollar in, in recent years, is that when risk appetite is low and people don't want to invest in emerging markets, the dollar does well. And if we look right now on the headwinds to emerging markets, well, we've got energy price increases, we've got the Fed potentially potentially <laughs> hiking interest rates uh, in 2022, and we've got that slow down in, in China. Right. And all of these are going to be and have been pushing money back into the US dollar. Can there be a big figure move in Indonesia, in Poland, in Turkey? Well, you know, again, all of these are going to be vulnerable in, in this sort of environment. I mean, energy prices uh, tend to have a bigger impact. And, and the, the, the huge uh, quantity that we've seen in, in wholesale gas prices, for instance, in Europe really will uh, have an impact. Now, uh, th th there's different there's different uh, uh, um, um, parameters here. We've got to look at which ones are energy exporters. Uh, those ones will do well in the same way that you were uh, describing that uh, energy firms are the only ones to do well in, in this sort sort of environment as well. So the energy exporters will do well and the Aussie will have a little bit of relief on, on that front, as will, as will some of those EM countries too. But uh, generally speaking, energy prices are a big drag on real incomes. Uh, you know, it is something which is really going to make people poorer and, and affect demand, not necessarily the sort of inflation that most central banks will respond to. Well, okay, so this is the interesting conundrum we hear from a number of analysts who come on this show. It's not necessarily something that uh, central bankers respond to. However, the ECB's hand might be uh, really uh, called as a result of some of the inflationary pressures that we're seeing, not only from energy, but also supply chain disruptions. And the fact that increased ability to buy will only exacerbate this. At what point do you see this pressuring the euro stronger uh, and the dollar weaker, given the fact that at some point the higher inflation prints will have an impact on central bank policy? I don't think that we're talking about uh, higher rates in the ECB really for some time. I think this is a story really affecting the dollar and, and a few other uh, central banks that Norway obviously yeah, have moved already. There's, there's a couple of others in the frame, but not uh, not the ECB. I mean, again, if we look at the headwinds and we look at yesterday's German unemployment data, it improved, but not at the sort of rate that people were expecting. If we look at Germany's exports, uh, exports they're very tied to China and we know that China is slowing. We know that we've seen a part of China's industrial uh, District having shutdowns because of uh, uh, electricity shortages, for instance. So I think Germany is facing the sort of headwinds. We do have an inelastic demand uh, for energy, or relatively inelastic, and and it's very difficult to, to shift that in in the short term. So higher energy prices really does respond to to lower demand, uh, and and that actually could pull the economies into a weaker position, and and that could be a concern for central banks into the new year. So Jane, what we have to talk about just to explore is what happens to a developed market. Market currency 
when a central bank needs to hike into economic weakness? How does that currency respond? And is sterling a decent example of that at the moment? Oh, sterling really is a, a decent example of that. We've seen hawkish commentary from the central bank not coming through into uh, gains for that currency. Now, uh, this could be because uh, the UK does have a significant current account uh, uh, deficit that could be increasing the, the, the vulnerability because as interna international investors look in, they want to see the whole suite of fundamentals and what they're seeing in the UK now uh, are, are really nasty numbers of fuel price shortages, driver shortages, skills shortages. Um, and and the, the whole suite of these concerns is, is, is weighing, it appears, on, on investment expectations. We've seen that in the survey this morning from the UK's Institute of uh, Directors. And that is really bogging down sterling right now. Jane, great to catch up with G10FX finally waking up a little bit. Jane Foley, it's been too long. Thank you. Rubber Bank Senior FX Strategist. This is a joy, and it is a particular joy as Bloomberg today recalibrated our iPhone sales guesstimates forward. And basically, Anurag Raga and John Butler said the streets got it wrong. iPhone sales are booming. They are booming because of the confluence of engineering and interior design, industrial design, I should say. James Dyson joins us, and some would argue it's Steve Jobs learned it all. From Dyson. He's the Dyson founder, the chief engineer, full disclosure. I have a vacuum. James Dyson, <laughs> invention of life. And we're thrilled that Sir James could join us this morning. Sir James, when you see the success of what Jobs did with his aesthetic, what do you think of the iPhone is so much an equivalent of your design and engineering ability? Well, I don't think I really compare the two. I mean, one's one's a, a phone, almost a piece of jewelry, and ours is a is a machine that does things, a uh, mechanical machine. I mean, increasingly we use software, artificial intelligence, and and so on. But but it's a you know ours, ours is a tool, a machine that you use, rather than a piece of jewelry. The the original machine, and I remember my father talking about this, was a wheelbarrow which broke every rule. We had an axis in an XY space, and Dyson said, no, think XYZ space is on the edge of spherical geometry. When you figured out the ball barrow, what was the response? How much grief did you get? Um, well, it, it, the idea really was that it didn't sink into soft ground because wheelbarrows tend to be used on building sites and, and at, at home in the backyard on soft ground. And it's stupid to have a narrow wheel, which is what most of them have. So I did this huge ball wheel. And then the, um, the bin on wheelbarrows is a rather open bin incapable of holding cement safely inside it. So I did a sort of dumper truck shaped bin. I just rethought the, the wheelbarrow from the ground up, as it were. Uh, but it's really quite a simple product. And we got 50% market share with it. So it did quite well. So, James, you wrote this book at a pivotal moment in the entire labor economy and, frankly, uh, on the precipice of the technological revolution that's going to accelerate to a new level. What would you say going forward is the biggest challenge for the next innovation, the next Dyson, uh, the next Dyson uh, vacuum cleaner or whether it's the iPhone? How do you foster that type of innovation? Well, that's a very good point. I mean, I, I think we should be encouraging more and more young people to, um, to become engineers and scientists 
we're all talking about all the problems that exist at the moment, you know, the obvious ones. Um, and it's engineers and scientists that can solve these problems. And the young, particularly, are passionate about these issues. Uh, you know, using less electricity, saving the world, uh, using less fuel, uh, and, and so on, and, and finding a different form of plastic, uh, something to replace plastic. So, and engineers and science, scientists can solve this. But I think that historically, very few of us have wanted to become engineers and scientists, partly because um, it's difficult and it's hard, but also because um, somehow it's never seen as glamorous. It's never seen as as, as something that interests ordinary people, but it jolly well is now. You know, Greta Thunberg has made it an interesting subject. So, James, where in the world do you think that uh, engineers are being most supported from an early age? And I speak of this as we do talk increasingly of the tech wars between the U.S. and China. Well, it's, I mean, obviously, a huge number of, of vast number of engineers are being produced in China, but also in India. I mean. Pune, just one city in, in India, for example, produces 40,000 engineers a year, which is actually more than we produce in England, the whole of, sorry, the whole of Great Britain. So, um, you know, I, I think on the whole, so-called developed countries are much worse at producing engineers and scientists than developing countries. For example, the Philippines produce more engineers than, than Britain. Um, and then, you know, in the, in the United States, there's 19 lawyers for every one engineer. <laughs> So, um, so we've got to do something about it. So what, what, what we've been doing, we've been working in schools, actually been working in some schools in Chicago, but a lot of schools in England over a number of years. And we try to improve design and technology teaching in schools. So bringing real products into schools and encouraging children to solve problems, right. to see engineering design as problem solving. So James, um, please, please give us an update on Brexit. The last time I talked to you, you were up on a soapbox telling us, let's go England, let's separate. Give us the Dyson up update on the success of Brexit. Well, you, you, you've got to give it a chance, uh, you know, because we, we can't change laws and get rid of red tape, European standards and all things overnight. That will happen over time. But a very good example of the success of Brexit is Britain's development of the AstraZeneca vaccine, which was developed at Oxford, done totally independently, whereas the European programme hasn't produced a vaccine yet. So I think that's a very good example of Britain going on its own, living by its wits and doing things independently. Uh, we've signed a lot of trade deals, not with you yet, unfortunately, but we've signed a lot of trade deals around the world. Um, and I see it as a psychological change more than anything else. We go on trading we can go on trading with Europe, as we have done for hundreds of years, and just as we did before we joined the EU, and as we are now. So uh, trade isn't really the issue. I think it's more a psychological issue and an mm -hmm. issue of so sovereignty. The issue of sovereignty, sovereignty is the greatest issue, I think, and that's what determined it in the end. Sir James, I mean, we're going to have to leave the United, States, the United States wouldn't want to be subservient to um, Canadian law, for example. For example. Very good. Sir James, thank you so much. Sir James Dyson's folks, the thank new you. book, James Dyson, Invention of Life. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal.
I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.